I'm going to open us in prayer. Father, while storms of sin and discontentment and fear and lack of faith roil our hearts this morning, please cause us to look to Jesus and only Jesus. Cause us to know that you are saving your children. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do we give thanks to God? If a non-Christian asked you why you give thanks to God, how would you answer? No doubt, if we went around the sanctuary, which we're not going to do, we'd hear many good answers. It's not a trick question, right? It doesn't require a lot of theological nuance to explain why we should give thanks to God. The lives of Christians are to be marked by thankfulness. That's a truism that's, that's taught throughout Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 5.20 Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And on and on and on, right? We could spend the rest of our time this morning reciting verses about being thankful. And that would be a good exercise to do. Maybe later this afternoon. Spend some time reading and meditating on passages about being thankful. So why do we give thanks to God? And that's a question that this morning's text answers. So please turn with me to Psalm 92. It can be found on page 498 of the Bibles provided in the pews. Psalm 92, page 498. And as you turn in your Bibles, allow me to provide a little context. When you get there, uh, you'll notice that the heading says, A Psalm, a Song for the Sabbath. While we can and should extract and apply the truths of these 15 verses the other six days of the week, Psalm 92 was written specifically as a song for the Sabbath. Its intended purpose is to encourage God's people to view and use the Sabbath as a day to focus on giving thanks to God, on worshiping God. Two weeks ago, when preaching Luke 23 and speaking of the Sabbath, Mike said, We gather to rest in Jesus' cross work and worship Him in anticipation of joining Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Psalm 92 is a call for God's people to see the Sabbath as a day of rejoicing, a day of joyful, thankful rest in God's goodness, and to look ahead to the final and full rest that God has for His people. And God's rest cannot be separated from the right worship of God. So please follow along as I read Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. 
But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. After we look at the first three verses under the heading, giving thanks, Psalm 92 provides us three main reasons why God's people are to give thanks to God. So our our outline for this morning is, point number one, giving thanks, then followed by the three reasons why. Point two, God's great works. Three, God's justice. And four, God's children shall flourish. So our first point, giving thanks. The first thing that jumps out in verse one is that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. First off, it is good because it is God's right. As Lord of all, he is owed our thanksgiving. Secondly, it is good because it is pleasant to the heart to borrow the words of Charles Spurgeon. We are surrounded by evil, the effects of the fall, sin. And the Sabbath day is a reminder that Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent Satan and is coming back one day to finish the job and usher his people into God's full and eternal rest. If you've had a hard week, if you're feeling defeated, rest today in giving thanks to your Creator and Savior. Truly, our thanksgiving to God is pleasant to the heart. Thirdly, it is good because it encourages others around us to give thanks. There's a reason why we sing corporately here at Arlington Baptist Church. And speaking of singing, look at the last half of verse 1. To sing praises to your name, O Most High. All right, uh, confession time. Years ago, before we moved up here, I would stand silently while the church sang. You can ask my wife. I excused it because, well, frankly, I don't really enjoy singing. I love music. I love listening to music. If you've ever, if you've ever been to my house, you can attest to that. Anyway, I, I said to myself and others, I worship God through listening to others sing. Amen? Well, by God's grace, I have repented of that sin, and I now sing. We are commanded to sing. We're not commanded to listen to singing. Did you catch that? We are commanded to sing. We're not commanded to stand or sit silently and listen to other people singing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the singing of the Word is an important and beautiful and right, good part of the worship service. Sing. Give thanks to God through song. And if I may be so bold as to add, and i got to be honest, out of fear of man, I almost cut this next part sitting back there. But be on time to the worship service. The scriptural call to worship, the prayers, the scripture reading, and the songs are all part of the worship service. We shouldn't miss any of it. Be on time. It's important. In fact, if you look at verse 2, the worship of thanksgiving to God is an all-day affair. We are to declare God's steadfast love in the morning and His faithfulness by night. And those two things, God's love and His faithfulness, are the same thing here. The psalmist is using a literary device, synonymous parallelism, to to poetically say that God's people are to give thanks to God from the beginning to the end of the Sabbath because of who God is. 
When we walk out of here in a little bit, the Sabbath is not over. Lunch, afternoon, evening, night, it's still the Sabbath. And we're still commanded to live and breathe thankful praise to our Creator. And echoing Mike from two weeks ago, I'm not telling you what to do or what not to do with the rest of your day. I'm saying that whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. When you eat lunch, be extra intentional in your prayer of thanksgiving. And throughout your, the meal, don't, don't allow yourself to forget who feeds you physically. And more importantly, who feeds you the bread and water of life. If you go for a walk this afternoon, pursue in your heart the wonder of God's creation. Be extra intentional in marveling at the handiwork of the sovereign creator of the universe. Whatever you do today, be extra intentional in praising and thanking your heavenly father. The Sabbath is all day. And the spirit of thanksgiving should move into the rest of your week. The praise of the Sabbath isn't finished at midnight. If we are truly seeking to rest in the glorious praise of our creator, we will not be able to help but have our life bathed in thanksgiving. We will long for the Sabbath, for the temporal Sabbaths, and for the final Sabbath. And our lives throughout the week will begin to reflect that. And then verse 3 brings us back to music. Now take note, uh, verse 3 is not a new sentence. There's a semicolon at the end of verse 1. So verses 2 and 3 are a single independent clause. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp to the melody of the lyre. As I mentioned earlier, I, I love listening to music. It's a rare moment that music is not playing in my house or while I'm working here at the church building. I get it. I, I agree that listening to beautiful music can and does prompt praise and thanksgiving of God. However, Psalm 92 is a psalm for the Sabbath, and the musical instruments of verse 3 are not disconnected from the declaration of thankfulness through singing commanded in verse 2. The psalmist is telling us that it is good and right to sing praises to God to musical accompaniment. We are to declare God's steadfast love to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. That's how the sentence structure works. Some denominations do not have musical instruments accompanying their corporate singing. And while I appreciate their desire to faithfully obey God, I believe that they are wrong on this point. Musical instruments are a helpful aid to our corporate singing. And the Bible assumes that God's people are declaring God's praise in song to musical accompaniment. Once again, though, there is also the expectation that God's people are thanking God through song corporately. We are all to be actively involved in the giving of thanks to God through song on the Lord's Day. We are not called to be passively involved, to merely listen. This is why we sing corporately here at ABC. And the first thing, according to Psalm 92, that compels us to corporately give thanks to God in song and in everything we do is because of God's great works. As J.I. Packer said, any theology that does not lead to song is, at a fundamental level, a flawed theology. And that brings us to our second point. We give thanks because of God's great works. Read with me again verses 4 and 5. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. With the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your, your thoughts are very deep. Contemplating who God is, contemplating the, the works of His hands should compel us to give thanks. 
Sometimes I'm afraid that our colloquial use of the word thanks, thank you, thankful, etc. have served to undermine how full and rich this word is in the Bible. So we're a DC crowd, so let's do a little polling. Raise your hand if you're thankful for the heater that's helping us stay warm this morning. I know we're Baptists, but you can still raise your hand. Okay. Now raise your hand if you're thankful that we have pews to sit on instead of the floor. Yeah, we could go on and on. and there, there are so many things that we have to be thankful for, and rightfully so. But dare I say, our, our thankfulness may be mundane. It, it may merely be a motion we go through. We're thankful for so many things that we don't really think about being thankful unless prompted. But all of the things that are blessings, all of these things that we're thankful for, and our approach to them, our posture towards the heater and the pews, I'm afraid may have, have dulled us. We have ironed out what it means to be thankful. I mean, can you honestly read these words? For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy and say that your definition of thankfulness fits into that. Can you honestly claim that when you say, I'm thankful for the heater, your word thankful is a synonym for the psalmist's word? Can you honestly say that when you confess your thankfulness to God that you mean it the same way in which the psalmist commands? As we got ready to come to the worship service this morning, what was our response to God? When our, our kids spilled their cereal, were we thinking about how it was going to negatively affect us? Going to make you late and the preacher would yell at you from the pulpit? Or did we praise God for the gift of children? For the opportunity to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ? Did we thank God for how He's using our children to make us more like Jesus? Did we even think about God's works? Do we allow our busyness to cause us to take God's works for granted? We've already established that this day, of all days, should be marked by joyful, overflowing thankfulness from morning to night. Was that true of us this morning? Is that ever true of us? But by God's grace, I, I hope your answer is... Yes, John, that's true of me. Sadly, I know it's often not true for me. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone in this. So I, I think the first thing we need to do in taking our cue from Psalm 92.4 is to reacquaint ourselves with God, with His works. And I can think of no better way to do that than through divinely inspired praises to God. So Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Have you ever really contemplated that verse? I don't mean contemplating with the goal to figure out sticky theological points in order to win debates. I mean, have you ever let the incredibleness of the first verse of the Bible wash over you? Have you ever thought of it as a hymn of praise? Two summers ago, I, I talked to the teens in their Sunday school class about how wonderful God's story is. Christianity is wrapped around the most marvelous story, the most colorful, the most mind-blowing, exciting story ever told because the protagonist of that story is the sovereign God of the universe. And it's a true story. We serve a fantastical God, a God who created everything from nothing. If you try to figure that out, to make sense of it, there are only two possible responses. You either reject it 
and make a God in your own image that you can tame and make sense of and make work for your life. Where you drop to your knees in awe of God and submit to Him. This is why Romans 1 says they know. Unbelievers have no excuse for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Romans 1, 19-21. The first verse of the Bible should leave us dumbfounded in awe. But does it? In Hamlet, the greatest play ever written, the first line is, who's there? There's no gradual sliding into the story, no lag time for the, the audience to catch their breath after the lights dim and the curtain goes up. No exposition to help the audience know what's happening. No, the rising action is immediate and extreme. So there are reasons why Hamlet is considered the greatest play ever written, and this is part of it. The first line is what's called an immediate change of stasis, a dramatic change. Something important has happened. Who's there? Now, compare that great opening line of one of the greatest works of art ever produced by a human hand to the opening line of God's story. Hamlet pales in comparison to God's story. In God's story, there was literally nothing. And then, through the power of His Word, God created everything. On your way here this morning, did you look around you and think, this, this is the handiwork of my Creator. Consider the words of Amos 5.8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is His name. Listen to Job 38 verses 4-13. And for those of you taking notes, make a note here. For those of you not taking notes, make a note here. This afternoon, read and reread Job chapters 38 through 41 and marvel at the great might and majesty of your God in His own words. Allow it to strip you of your pride and self-sufficiency. Until then, listen to Job 38 verses 4 through 13. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? We serve a magnificent God. Truly the handiwork of God is marvelous beyond the ability of human language to adequately describe. And He gave it to us to reveal Himself, to sustain us, to humble us. If we're not driven to joyful songs of praise when we look at God's creation, we may not understand who God is and what He's done for us. Every Christian should be a poet. The works of God's hand displayed by His creation aren't the only works that the psalmist is talking about here in Psalm 92, verses 4-5. through The psalmist is also calling God's people to recount God's works in their lives. The NIV translates verse 4, For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy what your hands have done. 
When, when reading through the Psalms, you'll soon notice that there are several dedicated to recounting God's salvific deeds in the history of Israel. Psalm 78 is an excellent example. Psalm 78.4 says, We will not hide them from their children. So what is the them? Keep reading. But tell, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. The next 68 verses do just that. They give praise for how God's faithfulness is exhibited in deeds like the exodus from Egypt, even His punishment on the people's unfaithfulness, and the choosing and lifting up of King David. Many other psalms give praise to God's salvific deeds in the life of the psalmist. Listen to the first seven verses of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. How often do we remember, much less give thanks for God's wondrous deeds in our own life. If we are repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus, God has literally rescued us from the slavery of sin, just like the Exodus pointed to. And His salvation has saved us from the just punishment of our sins, and we serve the King that the great King David pointed to. Christians, we have much to be thankful for in our new life in Christ. In, in many of the Psalms of David, in which he praises God for His salvation, the poems often begin with a tone of lament. David's agony is laid out, unhidden. Psalm 43, 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? But verse 5, Psalm 43's closing rebounds and says, Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're struggling this morning, if you're weary, if you're at the end of yourself because of physical ailments, emotional angst, fear of the future, whatever, if you're weighed down by the oppression of a fallen world and sin, I urge you to take the time to remember what God has done in your life and in your heart. If you are His child, He has saved you from far more than you can even remember. He has lifted you out of the miry clay of sin and set your feet on His righteous path. He is making you into a new creature. And if you look back over, over your life, you'll see evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. You are not alone. God is saving you. And that's why we're here this morning. We're here because the Son of God counted Himself as nothing and bled and died so that we might have life. And today, the Lord's Day, is a tangible reminder that the Son of God didn't stay dead, but rose from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. The dust of this earth is in heaven, fully renewed and recreated. The new creation has already begun, and brothers and sisters, we are a part of that. That should drive us to sing praises. We gather this morning to rejoice in God's past deeds and to confess that our hope is not in our present circumstances, 
but in the goodness of our God and His promise that He will one day bring us safely home to enjoy His full and eternal rest. That is what the second and final Adam has won for us by His unwavering and perfect obedience in life and in death. That, this, is the antidote to our discouragements, our fears, our pain and suffering. Christian, God has done great deeds in your life that transcend your current circumstances. And He's not finished. Trust in Him. And one of the ways in which we're commanded to do that is found in Psalm 92, to sing for joy at the great works of God. That beautiful truth is not everyone's to claim, though. And that brings us to our third point. We give thanks because God's enemies will be destroyed. Does that statement make you uncomfortable? We are thankful because the enemies of God are going to be destroyed. It's not an easy statement for many of us. It's not an easy statement for me. However, I must caution, our comfort level isn't what determines truth and goodness. We need to ask ourselves, are we fully submitting ourselves to God and His Word, or are we allowing the noise of our fallen culture or our fallen feelings to determine our response to God? And our answer to that is of eternal importance because it reveals whether we are worshiping the one true God or whether we have molded a God into an image that fits our self-serving parameters. So as I read and expound verses 6-11, through 11, pray for the grace and faith to submit to the sovereign God of the universe, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. So please follow along as I read Psalm 92, 6-11. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Most of us are probably struck by the use of two pejoratives that none of the parents or teachers in the room allow children to use. Stupid and fool. Those are strong words. Lord willing, next Sunday, Mike is going to preach Psalm 14 that begins with the famous line, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what are we to make of this, these strong words? Well, I think that the book of Daniel can help us out here. So keeping your finger in Psalm 92... Please turn to Daniel chapter 4, which can be found on page 740 of the Bibles provided in the pews. Daniel chapter 4, page 740. For the sake of time, we're not going to read much of this passage. But as I recap what's going on in Daniel 4, I want you to be able to look at the text and see that I'm not making any of this up. It's a fantastical story. All right, so Daniel 4. So at this point in the story of God's working through the prophet Daniel, Daniel is already known for his faithfulness to God and his God-given ability to interpret dreams. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a second troubling dream. The king uses the words, alarmed me, in verse 5. None of the astrologers and wise men can tell Nebuchadnezzar what's up. So he calls for Daniel. Uh, side note, why didn't he call for Daniel to begin with? I mean, if I have Michael Jordan on my team, I'm not giving LeBron James the ball, right? 
This speaks to Nebuchadnezzar's rebellion and refusal to submit to the God of Daniel, which ties into the words stupid and fool of Psalm 92. Nebuchadnezzar has yet to realize who God is. So in Daniel's interpretation of the dream given by God, he informs Nebuchadnezzar that because the king refuses to acknowledge God and give God glory, the king is going to be relegated to a dumb, mute beast. And it happened. Look down at Daniel 4.33. Immediately. The word immediately is in the Bible a lot. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now, still keeping your finger in Psalm 92, turn to Psalm 49, verses 10 through 12, which can be found on page 473 of the Bibles provided. Psalm 49, verses 10 through 12. Please follow along as I read Psalm 49, verses 10 through 12. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to other, others. Their graves are their homes forever. They're their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Nebuchadnezzar trusted in his own strength created monuments to himself, and he refused to acknowledge and give thanks to God. He was a fool, and he was literally brought to the state of a dumb beast. Now, by God's grace, he repented and then wrote a poem about it. Referencing Psalm 49 is exposition of Psalm 92, verse 6. Derek Kidner writes, By contrast, to be blind to all this, God's wondrous works, is to become like the beasts that perish, which is the literal force of the word the dull man. And that's how Kidner translated the stupid man of chapter 92, verse 6. So not to steal Mike's sermon for next week, but Psalm 14 states that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's not a vocal declaration of atheism. While it includes men like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking, its net is much wider than that. It's speaking of those of us who live our lives as if there is no God to whom we owe obedience and praise. You can confess God with your lips all you want, but if you're living in a manner that does not have God at the center of it, that does not recognize your total dependence on the sovereign creator of the universe, the pejoratives of Psalm 92.6 may be directed at you. I know that's harsh, but it gets worse. Look again at the end of verse 7. They are doomed to destruction. If you have yet to repent of your sins and place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is a reality that you really need to confront yourself with. You may be living a life of ease, like in the first part of verse 7. Everything may seemingly be going your way. You're healthy and successful. You're flourishing. However, and you know this, there's coming a day when that will all end. You may be able to fool yourself for a season, but someday, sooner than probably most of us are willing to admit, we will be faced with our own mortality. And we don't like that, right? Because our mortality is a stark reminder that we can never overthrow God and claim our independence. But death is coming. Because like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we've all sinned against God. And God promised at the very beginning that the wages of sin is death. Death. 
And God keeps his promises. But it gets worse. Verse 7 says that God's enemies are doomed to destruction forever. It's not a one and done. After death, God will judge you. And you will either be counted as his enemy or as his child. If you are counted as his enemy, you will be doomed to destruction forever. Without end. And frankly, that's what the psalmist explicitly says that the stupid man cannot understand. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. God allows his enemies to continue in their sin, blissfully headed to destruction, because that's what they want. God's enemies do not want to submit to him. They do not want to live a life dedicated to thankful obedience to God. They want their sin and their fraudulent independence from God at all costs. And he lets them have it. His justice and righteousness are wrapped up in his wonderful deeds and who he is. God cannot simply overlook sin and he is owed praise for that. Christian, do you give thanks to God for his justice, his righteous judgment? Now, and I, I want to be clear on this. We do not rejoice in the death of the wicked. We do not long for the eternal destruction of unbelievers. We give thanks that God is a just and righteous ruler. And we long for unbelievers, the non-Christians around us, to repent and submit through faith in Jesus to God. Our thankfulness for God's justice and righteous judgment should compel us to tell people that God has mercifully provided a way to be reconciled to Him and to enjoy His blessings, to become His child. And we know that God's blessings are eternal because through a contrast, the psalmist sings this praise of God in verse 8. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. While his enemies will exist in an eternal state of destruction, God will continue to rule and reign without end. And that contrast extends to God's people too. Earlier in the service, our brother Chris read Jeremiah 17 verses 5 through 18. Verses 5 and 7 provide the same contrast that we find in Psalm 92. Verse 5 of Jeremiah 17. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And then verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. You're either cursed or you're blessed. There's no middle ground. Psalm 92 puts it this way in verse, verses 10 and 11. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. You have blessed me. However, my eyes have seen the downfall of my evil assailants. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. We give thanks because God's children will flourish. Read with me again the final four verses of Psalm 92, starting in verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. That raises the question, who are the righteous? What's more, and this may be the most important part of my sermon, you should ask yourself, am I one of the righteous or am I an enemy of God? To answer that, and going back to our second point, you must first be confronted with who God is. The Bible teaches us that God is the creator of the universe, which includes you. As such, the entire universe owes God thanksgiving and praise. 
which includes you. Intimately wrapped up in that is the acknowledgement that thanksgiving and praise to God involves submission and perfect obedience. Tragically, the Bible also teaches that God's creation has fallen. Humans rebelled and sinned against God. Your own experience, your own heart, your own life tells you that's true. No one in this room is perfect. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against our Creator. And our sin creates an eternal problem. In Isaiah 6.3, the angels sing of God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Because God is holy, God cannot have any fellowship with sin, which means that our sin, your sin, my sin, our personal individual sin ethically separates us from God. As we looked at in our third point, those who are separated from God are counted as His enemies and are under His wrath and judgment, which will result in eternal death and punishment without end. Thankfully, though, God in His love provided a way for His children to be reconciled back to Him, to be counted as righteous. John Calvin wrote, Jesus coupled human nature with divine, that to atone for sin He might submit the weakness of the one to death, and that wrestling with death by the power of the other nature, He might win victory for us. Through His life of perfect obedience to the will of the Father, the Son did what we could not do. Jesus obeyed for us. Through His sacrificial obedience and death, the Son of God did what we could not do. Jesus paid the eternal punishment for the sins of those who placed their faith in Him. By His resurrection from the dead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, King Jesus did what we cannot do. He crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, and conquered sin and death, winning eternal life for God's children. Repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus is how you become a child of God that will flourish for all eternity. When you're in Christ... You're counted as righteous because of Jesus. If you have yet to bow the knee in faith to Jesus, I urge you to do so today. And if you have questions about what it means to become a child of God through faith in Jesus, please find me after the service. Lord willing, I'll I'll be at the back door. I'd love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to become a child of God. For those of us in the room who are children of God, we have this wonderful promise to be thankful for that will flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in the house of the Lord. And the words flourish and grow are action words. Something is happening to God's children. One theologian observed the psalmist witnesses to the destiny of the righteous in verses 12 through 15. Using an agricultural simile, they are like a tree planted in the temple with a lifetime of fruitfulness confessing the justice of God. As opposed to the destiny of God's enemy, the righteous, God's children through faith in Jesus, are destined to bring glory to God through abundant growth leading to eternal life. And as verse 15 says, declaring that the Lord is upright. In a word, God's people should be thankful for our sanctification, and not primarily for our sake, but because our sanctification brings God glory and declares that He is upright. For those who are unsure what the word sanctification means, it's the process by which the Holy Spirit is making us like Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed into new creatures. The new creation. I mentioned earlier about recounting God's deeds in your life. Followers of Jesus are being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's a promise. If you take the time to reflect back over your Christian life and take note of the ways in which you've grown, 
The victory over sin the Holy Spirit has given you. And now God has knit your heart to His. You'll find that you have much to be thankful for. In fact, you'll find that you have far more to be thankful for than you have to be discouraged by in your present circumstance. Until we die, or until King Jesus returns, whichever happens first, we will struggle with sin. We will struggle with frustration and worry. Our sanctification will not be completed in this life. However, in our current struggles, it's incredibly encouraging to reflect and rejoice over what God has already done and has promised to do. Christian, if you're struggling with a sin issue this morning, take heart. Rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have been freed from the slavery of sin and freed to new life. God is working in you and is changing you. He is bringing forth fruit in your life and you will not struggle with sin forever. There is a final Sabbath coming. Give thanks to God for that. And when you're faced with temptation, remind yourself of the gospel. In that moment of temptation, pray and thank God for who He is and what He's done and is doing in your life. Remind yourself that you are a child of the King of Kings that you have been freed from sin and, brought to, and, and you are being brought to God's full and final rest where you will sin no more. God is saving you from sin. Hold on to that. One of the things that we learn from Psalm 92.13 is that our sanctification, the fruit we're bearing, is because we are planted in the courts of our God. Spurgeon describes it as being rooted in Jesus. This side of Jesus' resurrection we know that Jesus is the full and final temple, the full and final courts of our God. If we are repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus, we are planted in the courts of God. We are planted in Jesus. And as we read in Ezekiel 47, life-giving water flows through the real temple of God. The tabernacle in Solomon's temple pointed to a new and better temple, to Jesus and in that temple, a river of life flows. Hear how Ezekiel describes it in 47 verse 12. On both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit for every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Does any of that sound familiar to anything in Psalm 92? Of course it does. But it gets better. Almost 600 years after Ezekiel penned those words, Jesus showed up in a Samaritan town. As he sat by a well, a Samaritan woman shows up. He asks her for a drink. She pushes back, and Jesus replies in John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that, is that is saying to you, Give me drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. A few verses later, Jesus expounds on this living water. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Psalm 92, Ezekiel 47, John 4. The Bible is one story with its climax in Jesus. You knew I'd eventually say that, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ, and you may have already figured this out, there really aren't three separate reasons to thank and praise God. There's only one reason. And that reason is God Himself. Who He is. His handiwork and deeds. His justice cannot be divided. You either submit to all of Him or you submit to none of Him. 
And for those who are submitting to God through faith in Jesus, we're bringing Him glory because through our sanctification, through the fruit being produced in us by the water of life which flows from Jesus, we are providing testimony that the Lord is upright and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Verse 15. We're living proof that God's justice and mercy met at the cross, that He is keeping His promise to recreate the world and usher His people into eternal rest. This is why we gather on the Lord's Day. To give testimony to God's mercy and justice and to offer our praise and thanksgiving to our Father who is saving us from our sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Sunday, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, is not simply a day among days. It is the day. Our time, our energies, our hearts, our desires should all long and grasp for the Lord's Day. Do we treat Sunday as a speed bump in our week to be carefully navigated over, as something that messes up our schedule? Does it disrupt our life's flow? Or, by God's grace, does our life flow from the worship of God through praise and thanksgiving with His people? Brothers and sisters in Christ, members of Arlington Baptist Church, God has blessed us richly, materially blessed us, We are a church family filled with wealth, powerful careers, prestige, and each other, meaningful relationships. Even in our lack, we all have things that much of the rest of the world is longing for. We should give thanks to God for all those good things, and and we do. But I'm afraid that our thankfulness may at times become mundane and lean towards self, even to the point of possibly allowing the good gifts from God to distract us or to take them for granted even. Or maybe God's good gifts discourage us. It's possible that we've become emotionally and spiritually overrun by our schedules, our career goals, our families, even keeping up with church programs. We can become so distracted that the creator of the universe becomes just one piece of our identity. At times, we forget that our God is on high. We often fail to declare his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. Sinfully and shamefully, I know in my own heart that I'm often guilty. But brothers and sisters, we serve a good God who is our Father, who longs for us, who longs for our praise and thanksgiving. And truly, it is good, pleasant to the heart to give thanks to Him. So let's commit by the power of the Holy Spirit to prayerfully center our life on Jesus, to desire to praise and thank Him above all else. Stuck in traffic? Marvel at who God is and praise Him. Stuck with screaming kids, marvel at who God is and praise Him. Failed to get that next level of security clearance, I don't even know how that works. Marvel at who God is and praise Him. In all things give thanks. And let's pray for the grace to long for the Sabbath. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank You for the reminder of who You are and what you've done. By the power of the Holy Spirit, please please cause us to rejoice in your goodness from morning to night. Cause us to give thanks for your mighty works. Please cause us to long for your Sabbath. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn for this morning can be found as number 253 in the hymnals. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We now have the opportunity to lift our voices in a song of praise to the Most High. Since this is a a short hymn,
We'll sing it through twice, and we're going to hold the amen until the end of the second time through. So praise God for whom all blessings flow. Please stand as we sing. Righteous because of their faith in Jesus, hear these closing words of benediction from 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 through 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Please be seated. <clears throat> 